One of the challenges of covering open and unresolved cases is trying to locate enough information on the case to give them their own episode. When I can't find information, it's hard to pull together enough material for a 30-minute discussion of the case. And today, we're talking about two cases that, in my opinion, are both solvable and very interesting. Two young women whose cases jumped out at me as ones that need more attention. And these are also cases that you've likely never heard of. If you've listened to Already Gone long enough, you know how much I enjoy shedding light on obscure cases. Unfortunately, each case has little information available. The police files are thin. Background and details on each girl, it's scarce. There's not much to find. But rather than letting these cases fall by the wayside, I am grouping them into one episode so that they can gain more attention and, hopefully, find some answers. I learned about each of these cases from my work with Missing in Michigan, where I serve as a board member. And these cases are old. One is from 1976, and the newer case is from the early 1980s. Probably 1981, but maybe 1980 or 82. We can't say for certain. And this uncertainty is one of the things that made the case interesting to me. I appreciate the puzzle, and listeners, I think you do too. For the older case, we know exactly where she is, but we don't know who she is. This is one of the most baffling Jane Doe cases I've come across. The second case, we know who she is, but we don't know where. We can't even say when she went missing or if she went missing from Michigan or Nebraska. That leaves the playing field wide open and creates way more questions than it does answers. Before we dive into the story, a couple of housekeeping notes. The weekend of October 4th, I was in Cincinnati attending DweebCon, which was hosted by my friends at the History Dweebs podcast. I, along with my friend Erica from the Southern Fried True Crime podcast, participated in a live episode about Philip Hanna, the humane hangman from Illinois. Now, History Dweebs is a comedic podcast for mature audiences. If you turn in for the episode, it's quite a departure from my work on Already Gone. And as you may know, I recently relocated to Georgia, and I'm taking advantage of my new home in the South because on Saturday, October 26th from 2 until 5 p.m., I will be attending the Southern True Crime Podcast Meetup at Tommy Condon's Restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. If you're a fan of true crime and live in the area, it's worth the trip. I'll be there, along with hosts from Unresolved, Pleasing Terrors, Southern Fried True Crime, Pretend, Moms and Murder, Something's Not Right, and Trace Evidence. Now, I haven't been to Charleston, South Carolina in years, so I'm looking forward to the visit and I hope you'll join us. You can find additional details on Twitter and Facebook. Hope to see you there. If you're in the Midwest or want to plan a true crime travel adventure that won't break the bank, be sure to listen to the upcoming promo from the True Crime Podcast Festival. This amazing event is in its second year, and it will be held the weekend of July 11th in Kansas City, Missouri. And now, on with the show. Our first case is the 1976 death of a young woman named Bill. Yeah, a girl, and her name was Bill. She spent the last 24 hours of her short life in the tiny enclave of Highland Park.
Highland Park is a city within a city, surrounded entirely by Detroit, except for a small part, which shares a border with the equally small city of Hamtramck. Highland Park dates back to the 1800s, but the community really took off in the early part of the 20th century, when Henry Ford of Ford Motor Company opened the Highland Park Ford plant on a 160-acre parcel in 1909. In the late 1940s, the nation's first depressed modern freeway, the Davison, opened, cutting across the city. And in the 1950s, when production slowed at the Highland Park Ford plant, Highland Park started a slow downturn. And by the 1970s, it was a high-crime area, dotted with cozy neighborhoods where people raised their families. Bill, she arrived in Highland Park just three years after the Ford plant closed its doors for good. And before we dig into her story, Bill is not missing. I know where you can find her. Six feet underground in a county-paid-for grave. The mystery here is that we don't know who Bill is. To cover Bill's story, we must go back to March of 1976, to a spot along Seven Mile Road. If Highland Park sounds familiar, it's because we've been there before when we covered the murder of Vincent Chen during his bachelor party in June of 1982. And you can learn more about Chen's case and the birth of the Asian American Civil Rights Movement in episode 60. So come with me to an early spring day in 1976, when an unsuspecting group picks up a young woman from a spot along Seven Mile Road, and their plans take a dark and unexpected turn. March 25, 1976, was a surprisingly nice day in Michigan. It was gray, but temperatures were in the 50s, a refreshing warm-up after a long, cold winter. Bill was spotted along Seven Mile Road. Maybe she was hitchhiking. Maybe she was working the corner. We can't say for certain. She met up with some people who invited her back to their place to crash for the night. Bill wasn't dressed for cold weather and I imagine that the thought of having a place inside to sleep was appealing. And before we go any further with her story, I want to clarify that I am using female pronouns for this case. While she introduced herself to others as Bill, we don't have enough information to determine if she was transgender, non-binary, trying to conceal her identity, or using her name or nickname. Her given name could be Willow, Wilma, or Billy. Or maybe Bill was just a name she made up on the spot. Bill went with her new friends to a small two-story home in Highland Park where she drank and partied with the occupants. At some point, Bill either fell asleep or passed out. The details are sketchy. When she couldn't be woken up, they took her to nearby Detroit Osteopathic Hospital, which was just one mile from the small clapboard house on Buena Vista, where Bill spent her last night on Earth. Bill was pronounced dead at the hospital. The people who took her there, people who met her for the first time just hours earlier, they had little information to share with police. They said Bill told them that she, quote, ran away from a group home in Ohio. And that's about it. Or that's all they could recall, or all they were willing to share with law enforcement. The file on Bill made up of only a few thin sheets, doesn't tell much of a story about her. It's possible that Bill was already under the influence when she was picked up by her friends, 
and that the partying she did at the house on Buena Vista created a fatal mix of intoxicants. Highland Park was a densely populated community with a small police force and a high crime rate. Police didn't spend a lot of time on an unidentified woman who likely died of an overdose. They probably thought the coroner's office would investigate her identity. The scant information gleaned from the people Bill was with in Highland Park did not help identify her. And Bill's clothing? It's not revealing either. She was dressed in a dark gray or black top, size large, black and white herringbone pants, maroon socks, and a black bra. No mention of shoes, underpants, or a jacket. Nothing about the contents, if any, of her pockets or if she wore any jewelry. It's possible that Bill's fellow partygoers kept any personal items she may have had. Or, if she was carrying a purse or wallet, it could have been left behind when they took her to the hospital. If Bill did die of an overdose, I doubt anyone stuck around too long. In the 1970s, drug charges were serious business. Here's what we do know about Bill. She was a white female, approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall, with an average build. She had shoulder-length brown hair, which I would describe as wavy or fluffy or full. It wasn't straight or flat. Her eyes were blue-green in color, and the Wayne County Medical Examiner thought she was between 16 and 25 years of age. I've seen it suggested that the black-and-white patterned pants could identify her as a chef or someone who works in a kitchen, but it's my understanding that Bill's pants were unremarkable. They were just black-and-white trousers. No one has come forward looking for Bill. Her description does not match any of the missing women of her height, hair color, and time frame in NamUs, and it's possible that Bill was never reported missing to law enforcement. Eventually, Bill made her way to a shelf in the office of the Wayne County Medical Examiner, and she waited there for someone to claim her. When no one stepped forward, she was buried on the state's dime, in a plot reserved for the unclaimed. It's likely that Bill was born between 1951 and 1960, somewhere in the Great Lakes region. If the story about the group home in Ohio is true, I would imagine that she might have come from the Toledo area as it's the closest good-sized city to Detroit. I've posted a sketch of Bill on our website. The sketch was made from photos of the deceased prior to her burial. Perhaps someday they will exhume Bill's body and her remains can be tested for DNA, work that could lead her back to her family, work that might give her back her name. Until that day arrives, if you have information about Bill, please contact me directly or contact NamUs. Bill's case number is UP12115. That's UP for unidentified person. 12115. Hey, true crime fans, you can join many of your favorite true crime podcasts in one place at the True Crime Podcast Festival. In addition to meeting and mingling with true crime podcasters, You will experience exciting panel discussions, live episodes, plus make new friends with others who appreciate your love of the genre. The 2020 True Crime Podcast Festival will be held July 11th and 12th in Kansas City, Missouri. Tickets are on sale now. For more information, to buy tickets or learn more about the festival, visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com. 
That's truecrimepodcastfestival.com, July 11th and 12th, 2020, in Kansas City, Missouri. Hope to see you there. Our second case takes us from the mean streets of the Detroit area west to Niles, Michigan, a small community in the southwest corner of the state. Niles is located just a few miles north of South Bend, Indiana. And today we're exploring the disappearance of 15-year-old Tammy Sue Clements. Tammy was born in May of 1965, the only daughter of Mary and Dennis Clements. Tammy's mother, Mary, struggled to lead a calm and stable life. She was in and out of relationships, including several marriages. Her behavior created an unpredictable home life for her children. Dennis Clements would be one of her many husbands, and she would have two children with him, Tammy and her brother Dennis, who was born in 1968. When Mary and Dennis Clements divorced, Tammy and young Dennis lived with Mary, and dad Dennis moved to Nebraska with his new wife, Norma. Dennis and Norma would have two sons, Thomas and Samuel. Now, Dennis and Norma, it was a good marriage, and they remained married until Dennis died in 2014. In the years following her divorce from Dennis Clements, Mary had custody of the children she had with him. And in 1978 or maybe 1979, there was allegedly an issue in Mary's home, an issue involving Tammy and Mary's live-in boyfriend. Child Protective Services became involved. And Dennis ended up in foster care, and Tammy was sent to Nebraska to live with her dad and his wife, Norma. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment to review our players, because there are a lot of people with identical or similar names. Our missing person is Tammy Sue Clements. Her younger brother is Dennis Clements, and he was born three years after Tammy. Their parents are Mary and Dennis, who divorced sometime in the mid-1970s. Dennis, Tammy's father, would marry Norma, and the two of them had two children, two boys, who were very young when our story takes place. So sometime between 1978 and 1980, and again, we don't know for sure, and it's frustrating, and it makes this case hard to resolve. But between 1978 and 1980, Dennis and Norma decided they would leave Nebraska and come back to Michigan, and that they would bring Tammy and their two young sons with them. Now, the story I've heard is that Tammy refused. She said she would not go back to Michigan. And Tammy, depending on when this happened, is between 14, 15 years old. So Norma and Dennis Clements returned to Michigan without Tammy. Tammy's kid brother, Dennis, he's been in foster care, and he can't offer any information about Tammy's living situation at this point. Norma and Dennis Clements returned to Michigan without Tammy. And Tammy's kid brother, Dennis, well, he was in foster care when this happened, so he cannot offer any information about Tammy's living situation. The two sons of Norma and Dennis Clements were very young during this time, still babies, so they can't report on Tammy's movements either. And listeners, you need to know that what I just told you, it may not be the whole story, because Tammy being left behind in Nebraska, it's just a theory at this point. She may have disappeared from Nebraska, but that theory is called into question when you learn that Tammy Sue Clements was a student at Niles High School for grade nine. That puts her in Michigan in 1980. 
Could Tammy have run away from Niles or disappeared from Niles? When police interviewed Tammy's mother in 2015, nearly 25 years after her daughter vanished, the story Mary Pickens gave police about her daughter is that Tammy didn't want to be in Michigan, that Tammy left the state headed for the sunshine and promise of California. Tammy's brother Dennis tells law enforcement that according to his mother, about two months after Tammy left, Mary received a phone call from her. She said Tammy called from San Diego wanting to come home. Tammy told her that she was about to board a bus headed east, back to Michigan, back to her family in Niles. Tammy never arrived home, and she never called again. This would be the last contact Mary had with her daughter. There is no corroboration of this phone call. There is no confirmed date for the call. In fact, we aren't sure what year this phone call was supposed to have taken place. But I'm guessing it would have happened between June of 1981 and the end of 1983. Tammy Sue Clements turned 18 in May of 1983. And this is where things get complicated. Tammy's mother told police in 2015 that she filed a missing persons report with the Niles police, but she can't remember the name of the officer she spoke with. But she thinks she filed the report in 1987 and that the officer that she talked to in the 80s has since passed away. Now, if that last bit seems like a strange comment, remember, Niles is a small town with a population of about 12,000 people. So it would not be unusual for Mary to know if one of the officers had passed away. Despite the best efforts of their records department, Niles police could not locate any report filed about Tammy Sue Clements. So when Dennis, Tammy's brother, walked into the station in February of 2015, the investigative team had to start their research from scratch. When they interviewed Mary, she said that in 1987, she'd filed a, quote, runaway report for Tammy. And I find this odd. Tammy was born in 1965. She would have been in her early 20s in 1987. Why wait so long to report her missing? Could Mary have been involved in Tammy's disappearance? Or was she just so caught up in her own life and her own issues that she didn't think twice about the location and well-being of her daughter? There are mothers like that. Now, approaching a missing persons case 30 years after the person vanished is never easy. But Niles police ran down what they could. They talked to Tammy's mother to see what she could tell them about the disappearance. But she didn't have much to give them, just a story about a phone call from California and a missing persons report she might have filed around 1987. But the records department did come through because Niles police learned that one of their officers had contact with Tammy Sue Clements in April of 1981. They had contact with her again in May of 1981, when Tammy was a passenger in a vehicle where a citation was issued. Now, I'm a little bit skeptical about this because maybe it wasn't Tammy. Maybe someone gave Tammy's name to avoid getting into trouble. But what if it was Tammy? So let's work with the idea that it was her and Tammy Sue Clements was alive and well in May of 1981, the same month she would celebrate her 16th birthday. When Tammy's brother walked into the Niles police station in 2015, Tammy's father had been gone about a year at that point, but his wife, Norma, and their two sons were still alive. Tammy's mother, now Mary Pickens, 
She's also alive and living in the Niles area. Dennis, Tammy's brother, he just wants to find his sister. He reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NICMEC, and the police in Niles. Once he's made a report with Niles, investigators collect DNA from Dennis and his mother. These are kept on file and put in the database, hoping for a match with Tammy. NICMEC also opened an investigation into her disappearance. Looking for answers, investigators run Tammy Sue Clements, born May 1965, through several databases. No one with that name and birthday was issued a driver's license, state ID, military ID, or a passport. Nor does someone with that name and birth date show up as having crossed an international border, such as traveling to Canada or Mexico. And listeners, I'm here to tell you that crossing into Canada could be done easily and often without showing ID during the 1980s. I know, I spent many an evening in Ontario, and I was rarely, if ever, asked to show ID. And if you're not familiar with geography in Michigan, yes, Michigan shares a border with Canada but the border crossing is almost 200 miles or 300 kilometers from Niles where Tammy lived. I doubt that she crossed to Canada to get away from her troubles at home. So where the hell is Tammy Sue Clements? And when did she go missing? Did she actually go to California? Was the phone call home to her mother in the early 1980s legitimate? Or did Mary Pickens make it up? Here's what we do know. Sometime in or after 1978, Tammy and her brother Dennis were living with their mother in Niles, Michigan. Things became unsafe at home. Tammy is sent to Nebraska to live with her dad. Her younger brother Dennis is placed in foster care. Poor kid. Strangely, the Lincoln, Nebraska school district has no record of her ever attending one of their schools. Then, at some point, between 1979 and 1981, Tammy is back in Michigan a place she does not want to be. And it's possible that in the summer of 81, 16-year-old Tammy ran away from Niles, headed west to California. In the almost five years since her brother walked into the Niles Police Department to file a missing persons report at the suggestion of NCMEC, there has been little movement in the case. A couple of promising Jane Doe's were compared to Tammy's DNA and records, files from Colorado, California, and Alabama but none of them were a match to her DNA and CODIS. Sadly, both men known as Dennis Clements, Tammy's father and brother, have since passed away. Tammy's mother, Mary Pickens, she's also passed away. This leaves only an investigator from Niles to search for the missing girl. Since Tammy's case came across my desk, I've been picking at it, trying to loosen a thread that could be followed. I've shared her information in Niles community groups, and I'm hoping there is someone left who can shed light on what became of her. Had Tammy stayed in Niles, she would have been Niles High School, class of 1983. Perhaps a former classmate will remember her. Because Tammy was only 16, or maybe even younger when she vanished, it's hard to search for her in unidentified remains because she likely grew, or her appearance changed dramatically in the months after she vanished. No one seems to recall a Sweet Sixteen party for Tammy in May of 1981. I've been trying to find people who may have interacted with her that summer of 81 in Niles. Maybe they can shed light on what became of Tammy. At the time of her disappearance, Tammy Sue Clements was between 15 and 16 years old. 
She was five foot five inches tall with chin length light brown hair that looked reddish or blonde in the summer sun. Tammy wore glasses and had a space between her two front teeth, which formed in an inverted V. The disappearance of Tammy Sue Clements is being handled by the Niles Police Department. If you have tips or information, please contact Sergeant Swanson at 269-683-1313. That's Niles Police, 269-683-1313. If you would like to see the missing persons flyers for both of these cases, check out our website, alreadygonepodcast.com. Already Gone also has a lively discussion group on Facebook to talk about these cases and more. I will post the missing person flyers in there as well, and you can also find us on Twitter at Already Gone Pod. If you're interested in missing persons from Michigan, there's the Missing Michigan group on Facebook, and Missing in Michigan has an Instagram, which is Missing in Michigan. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 